1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
3: In this world, nothing is certain except for death and taxes. And those are both hot topics, especially lately on this podcast. Last week, we talked about tax day itself, which is normally April 15th or thereabouts, and how the stress or incentives surrounding that day can make us change our behavior, consciously and unconsciously. Sometimes changing behavior is the point of a tax. For centuries, so-called sin taxes have been put on products like alcohol and tobacco which are bad for us as individuals and also as a society. When the government wants us to stop doing something, it can ban that thing altogether, like we do with assault rifles and copyright infringement. Lots of recreational drugs are banned, and we tried to ban alcohol in the 1920s, but banning products has its downsides. For one thing, it can create a black market, which causes all sorts of other problems. Another approach is to tax the behavior. Whatever it is, you can still do it, but it'll cost you more the purpose of sin taxes is to get us to use less of those things that are bad for us to change our behavior in ways that'll eventually improve our own health and sometimes the health of others but do these taxes even work and do they work how we want them to from the free economics radio network this is free economics md i'm bapu jena i'm an economist and i'm also a medical doctor Each episode, I dissect an interesting question at the sweet spot between health and economics. Today on the show, we're going to talk about sin taxes that have been around for a while. The goal of that tax
4: really was to support debt payments for the Revolutionary War.
3: As well as another, more recent tax.
1: This didn't gain serious traction until the last decade or so. They got a lot of pushback.
3: And whether all of this taxing or any of this taxing is worth it. We want to set a tax
5: at a level that might still allow people who really value the consumption to keep consuming, but reduce consumption by people who aren't getting as much value out of it.
3: Sin taxes are an excise tax, collected on top of other local or federal taxes, and meant to discourage the purchase and consumption of certain items. They're hardly a new idea.
4: Cleopatra taxed alcohol to fund some of her wars. The first sin tax, of which I'm aware in the United States, started at the very beginning of our country with the whiskey tax, as it was known. It was a tax on distilled spirits, and the goal of that tax really was to support debt
3: payments for the
4: Revolutionary War.
3: That's health economist Catherine McLean.
4: I'm an associate professor in the Department of Economics at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania.
3: You may remember Catherine from a 2021 Freakonomics radio episode called Let's Be Blunt. Marijuana is a boon for older workers. Her research focuses on tobacco, alcohol, and illicit drugs, and the public policies that might help reduce the use of these items policies like taxes.
4: So generally, sin taxes, you might think about them as taxing products that have what economists call externalities.
3: Externalities are when a transaction has effects that extend beyond the people participating in it. If you go to a bar and you order three beers in a row, that's a transaction between you and the bartender. They get money, you get alcohol. But you may not be the only two people affected. For example,
4: with alcohol, we might think about drunk driving as being a negative externality. I consume the alcohol, I become intoxicated or impaired, and I drive my vehicle. And when I'm driving my vehicle while I'm impaired, I may get in an accident where I might injure another person, I might damage property, so my behavior is impacting other people and in a negative way.
3: The idea of an externality is central to whether and why a syntax is levied on an item. These taxes force us, in theory, to pay for the literal and figurative health costs associated with using tobacco, or in this case, alcohol. All of this factors in when researchers and government officials decide which sins to tax and by how much.
4: A big argument that's made about cigarettes in particular is that People who smoke have higher health care costs, and those higher health care costs are going to impose costs either on the public through the use of public insurance like Medicaid and Medicare. When we're thinking about private insurance, we might think about costs being passed through to non-smokers through overall higher private health care expenditures that have to be financed in some
3: way. So, sin taxes have two effects. They make us do less of the thing being taxed, and they raise revenue.
4: Those are kind of competing goals if you think about it. If we expect the revenue to be increased due to the tax, this kind of implies that people need to keep smoking while the tax is hot, while we have this higher tax, so we can reap these revenues. However, if our tax is successful and we reduce the amount of smoking, then we have less revenue to obtain from this tax.
3: In other words, to reap the financial rewards of a syntax. We need some people to continue to do the thing, like smoking cigarettes, that we are actively trying to get them to stop doing. For their own health benefit, sure, but also for everyone else's. Still, from the government's perspective, that's a trade-off between two positive things, right? Less smoking or more revenue. But syntaxes can have clear downsides too.
4: If we look back to... 1964, this is before the first Surgeon General's report, which was really the first announcement that cigarettes may be harmful to health. Prior to that, about 42% of people in the United States smoked.
3: That first Surgeon General's report on smoking and health, published in January of 1964, changed everything. It confirmed that smoking cigarettes was really bad for you. Today, around 12.5% of adults still smoke traditional cigarettes. This group of people that continues to smoke, despite knowing the risks, despite the hefty taxes, they're serious about it.
4: More recent studies, including some of my own work, suggest that remaining smokers are very hardcore smokers or they're very attached to smoking. We think that the taxes may not work as well because we have a different composition of smokers at this time.
3: Okay, so these hardcore smokers may not be likely to quit just because cigarettes are being taxed. But they are going to change their behavior in other ways.
4: When you increase the tax of a cigarette, you actually can change the way that people consume the product. There's a really interesting study from about, say, 15 years ago that shows when you increase the tax, smokers smoke the cigarette more intensely. That is, they smoke it right down to the butt where you're consuming the most harmful portion of the cigarette. What we see is that we're not really improving health. People are just getting more bang out of each cigarette. And maybe those last draws are even more harmful to an individual's health.
3: Research has shown that tax increases on cigarettes do encourage some people to quit smoking. But the price increase also leads committed smokers, those who weren't going to quit, To maximize each cigarette, they want to get their money's worth. And that's not all.
4: There's a study from the 2000s showing that people will substitute cheaper cigarettes, which tend to have more tar in them when cigarettes are
3: taxed. That's a perverse effect of cigarette taxes, encouraging behavior that actively harms smokers' health. So if cigarette buyers will switch to a dirtier substitute, is there a way to get them to switch to a potentially healthier one?
4: Cigarettes and e-cigarettes are what are referred to as economic substitutes. That means that a consumer will view them as substitutable. That is, if I can't smoke the cigarette, I can use the e-cigarette.
3: Electronic cigarettes were introduced in the U.S. in 2006. A recent Federal Trade Commission report found that between 2015 and 2018, e-cigarette sales soared from around $304 million dollars to over $2 billion in just three years. Needless to say, these devices are here to stay. But just because one product might be a substitute for another doesn't mean they are the same.
4: These products exist along what I would call a risk continuum, where you might think about cigarettes as being the most risky and e-cigarettes potentially being less risky or less harmful to your health.
3: What Catherine says is true. While they're certainly not harmless, research has shown that e-cigarettes are probably safer than combustible cigarettes and that they might even help some people quit smoking altogether. So, should they be subject to syntaxes? On the one hand, they're harmful, and there's good reason to discourage them. On the other hand, for smokers who can't quit nicotine, they're not as bad as tobacco. Ideally, we'd want to encourage people who already smoke to switch to e-cigarettes, and discourage everyone else from taking them up. Currently, 30 states and the District of Columbia levy a tax on e-cigarette sales. In 2020, Catherine and her colleagues wondered how a national tax on e-cigarettes might influence smoker behavior.
4: We found that if that tax had gone into place, that would have increased the number of smokers in the United States, adult smokers, by one percentage point. What does that mean in terms of numbers? We calculated there would be 2.5 million additional daily adult smokers from imposing that level of tax on e-cigarettes. That would be people transitioning from the e-cigarette to the cigarette. So moving from a less harmful product to a more harmful product. And this can be concerning from a public health perspective because generally, The reason why we're thinking about taxing e-cigarettes is because we want to improve public health.
3: We've been talking about sin taxes, policies that penalize people for doing things that are harmful to their health. But what about the opposite? Rewarding good behavior, like giving people a tax credit for buying more fruits or vegetables, or joining a gym.
4: The stick and the carrot is often the way I've heard it described. So where the stick might be a penalty, and the carrot might be a reward. We think that people respond more so to the stick than to the carrot. If I was to gain $100 versus if I was to lose $100, I am going to change my behavior to a greater amount for the loss. People who are responding to the carrot, they're going to behave well anyway. So you're not really moving the needle
3: Improving public health through syntaxes is tricky. They work, but they also have unintended consequences. Coming up, what happens when a new sin is identified?
1: I think it's really important for the public health community to think carefully about some of the opposition.
3: I'm Bapu Jenna, and we'll talk more about that after the break.
5: Life is a highway, and on it there
1: will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
3: As we discussed before the break, alcohol and tobacco have been subjected to sin taxes for longer than most of us have been alive. Gambling also gets hit with sin taxes. But more recently, another item has fallen into the sinful category.
1: For a long time in the U.S., we've had really an epidemic of chronic diseases, and many of those are related to nutrition. Unhealthy diets contribute to obesity, type 2 diabetes, tooth decay.
3: That's Christina Roberto.
1: I am the Presidential Associate Professor of Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I study food policies to try to promote healthy eating And sugar-sweetened beverage taxes have gained a lot of traction lately.
3: One of the first people to propose a tax on so-called low-nutrition foods, like sugar-sweetened beverages, was Kelly Brownell, a public policy and food policy expert who just happens to have been Christina's mentor. In a 1994 op-ed in the New York Times, Brownell made the case that rising obesity rates were driven by the widespread availability of fatty, sugary foods and that higher taxes on those items would help Americans lose weight.
1: It got a lot of pushback, but I think that was the time where it sort of entered the national discourse and had been sort of floating around as as something to think about. But this didn't gain serious traction until the last decade or so. In
3: 2015, Berkeley, California, was the first U.S. city to tax sugar-sweetened beverages. Things like soda, sports and energy drinks, and fruit punch. Since then, several other cities have followed suit, including Philadelphia, where Christina lives and works. As with other sin taxes, the tax on sugar-sweetened beverages is meant, in a way, to save us from ourselves.
1: So we now have a good sense that when you implement these taxes, people buy fewer sugary drinks. And that seems good. But there's this question of, are people just substituting, right? So you buy less soda, but then you eat more Snickers bars. And we actually don't see evidence that people are substituting to other sugary snacks. So I think that's really encouraging.
3: Christina's research has shown that sales of sugar-sweetened beverages have gone down in Philadelphia by nearly 40% since 2017, when the city imposed a one and a half cent per ounce tax on those products. In Berkeley, water sales jumped by 29% in the three-year period after the sugary drink tax was enacted there. Whether this is translated to better health outcomes is harder to know.
1: The truth is, we don't have great data on that yet. These taxes haven't been around for that long to know how they're going to
3: really move the needle on things like type 2 diabetes. Information from other countries may offer some insight, though. So in Mexico,
1: they implemented a countrywide tax on sugary drinks. And they were able to look at how prices changed in different cities and see how that translated to changes in body mass index among adolescent girls and adolescent boys. And what they found is about a 3% decline in body mass index among adolescent girls, no significant decline among boys. That's really the only data that we have at this point to suggest that these taxes may lead to some improvements in health.
3: The motivation for imposing sugar-sweetened beverage taxes is obesity, which is a major health issue in the U.S. Around 43% of adults And 20% of children in this country are obese, according to the CDC. Like alcohol and tobacco, sugary drinks have externalities. They just look a little different.
1: The first one to think about is parents making choices for kids, right? So the parent tends to be the gatekeeper who's bringing the food into the house and serving food, particularly to young kids. Kids aren't making their own choices, and presumably they would like to be healthy in the future, The other one that comes up a lot is the cost to the healthcare system. I think it's easier to imagine sort of someone blowing smoke into your face. (laughs) This one feels more abstract, Um, but it is a reality, right, that these diet-related diseases do generate a lot of costs.
3: Syntaxes are designed to target the people who consume those items the most. But research has found that the lowest-income Americans consume about two and a half more sugar-sweetened beverages per week than the highest income group. Similarly, CDC data shows that adults living below the poverty level are about twice as likely to smoke cigarettes as those living well above the poverty level, which means that sin taxes hit hard a group of people who can least afford to pay more. If we put a tax on these beverages,
1: on sugary drinks, and lower income individuals are more likely to drink these drinks, then shouldn't we be concerned that there's this kind of undue burden placed on that group
3: of people? And I do think we should be concerned about that. Many sin taxes are regressive, meaning that they hit poorer people harder than wealthier people. That's one of the primary reasons that taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages are controversial. And it's true that sin taxes can be regressive, but so can illness.
1: The reality is that these diet-related diseases affect low-income people more than they affect other groups in the population.
3: Putting this revenue back into the communities potentially most harmed by higher taxes can try to offset some of their regressive nature. For example,
1: a good portion of the revenue from the tax is actually being invested in Black and brown communities in Philadelphia to foster and push forward initiatives that those communities really want. So an example is expanding access to pre-K or rebuilding different parks,
3: or funding rec centers. This isn't the same, though, as putting money back into the hands of specific people affected by the taxes. But it turns out that if you include the health benefits in your calculations, soda taxes don't look regressive at all. In our
5: quantitative estimates, we find that soda taxes are actually progressive, because the health benefits that accrue to low-income people
3: outweigh the fact that they pay more in tax payments. That's Hunt Alcott. He's an economist at Microsoft Research and a visiting professor at MIT. He studies the intersection of behavioral economics and public economics, or, as he puts it, when people don't always act in their own best interest. Hunt's research has looked at how we can optimize taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages. We want
5: to set a tax at a level that might still allow people who really value the consumption to keep consuming, but reduce consumption by people
3: who aren't getting as much value out of it. He's also interested in whether it's even worth it to tax these items. Generally, the answer is yes. He finds that the benefits of sugary drink taxes outweigh the costs. But he has a wish list. If I could wave a magic wand... The
5: first thing that I would do to change how we tax sugary drinks in the U.S. is to tax the sugar, not the liquid.
3: In the U.S., sugar-sweetened beverages are taxed per ounce of liquid. But Hump believes these drinks should really be taxed per gram of sugar. Some
5: drinks have a lot of sugar per ounce, and other drinks have a lower sugar concentration. And it's the sugar that's actually bad for our health. And so our group has estimated that if we set taxes that are of like one cent per gram of sugar, as opposed to one cent per ounce of liquid, that would really supercharge the effects of sugary drink taxes. It would generate much more bang for our buck. Hunt has another item on
3: his wish list.
5: Another thing that I could do if I could wave a magic wand is
3: to have taxes set at wider geographic areas. Because it turns out tax evasion is perfectly legal when it comes to sin taxes. In many cases, it's easy enough for people to cross the border to a neighboring state or city to avoid paying higher prices. Here's Catherine McLean.
4: We call this cross-border smuggling. It sounds a bit more nefarious, but it's traveling to an area where the product is not taxed, purchasing the product, and consuming it. So it really comes down to How much money will I save?
3: With syntaxes, nothing is perfect. We try our best to get it right, to do the most good for the most people. To reduce the likelihood people will engage in behaviors like smoking or drinking sugary beverages that can harm themselves and also possibly, in different ways, harm other people too. But there are trade-offs, like in so many areas of medicine and public health. So, as we think about new and interesting ways to encourage people to be healthier, to make better choices when it comes to their diet and other habits, it's hard not to wonder what could be next after sugary drinks. Candy and cookies have added sugar. Will those be taxed eventually? Will we start taxing meat products because they're high in saturated fat? What about processed foods? And will we tax activities that make us more sedentary? A lot of people believe we have the right to make these choices, good or bad, for ourselves. Because in the end, we pay for the choices we make, not just in dollars and cents, but in our health and how long we live, which is the real price. Our ability to make those choices for ourselves boils down to a simple but incredibly difficult question. How much control do we really have? Christina Roberto again.
1: The idea that we are making decisions freely is not understanding the reality of what's happening. The food industry is motivated to get you to buy a lot of unhealthy food that isn't gonna be in your best interest. So I just wanna level the playing field. I think we need to step back and really think about, am I making these choices? Who's influencing me? Because someone is. And right now it's the food industry.
3: I know I've left you with a lot to consider, but hopefully you'll share your thoughts with me and other listeners on Twitter at DrBapuPod. That's D-R-B-A-P-U-P-O-D. Or shoot me an email at Bapu at Freakonomics.com. Anyway, that's it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Catherine McLean, Christina Roberto, and Hunt Alcott. I really hope you enjoyed our two-part series on taxes and that you didn't let the stress of tax day get to you this year. Coming up next week... When it comes to our health care, are we checking the price tag first? The number one financial concern for Americans is not their education, food, housing, it is healthcare care. And so it's not unreasonable to think that there would be a lot of interest in this kind of information so that they could choose where to go. If I buy a car and one car costs 50,000 and another car costs.
5: I can almost guarantee you that the $50,000 car is
3: going to be much better. But in healthcare, I wouldn't be so sure. That's next week on Freakonomics MD. And as always, if you want to learn more about the research I talked about today, or if you want to read a transcript, that's at Freakonomics.com. Also, we're working on an episode and we need your help. We get a lot of fascinating emails from listeners full of provocative questions. In a few weeks, I'm going to do my best to answer some of them on the air. So, if you've got something you've always wanted to ask me, this is your chance. Send a voice memo to bapu at Freakonomics.com. Make sure to record somewhere quiet, and please keep your thoughts to under a minute. Thanks for listening.
2: Freakonomics MD is part of the Freakonomics Radio Network, which also includes Freakonomics Radio, No Stupid Questions, and People I Mostly Admire. All our shows are produced by Stitcher and Renbud Radio. This episode was produced by Julie Canfer and mixed by Eleanor Osborne. Our staff also includes Allison Craiglow, Greg Rippin, Gabriel Roth, Rebecca Lee Douglas, Morgan Levy, Zach Lipinski, Ryan Kelly, Mary DeDuke, Jasmine Klinger, Emma Terrell, Lyric Bowditch, Jacob Clementi, Alina Coleman, and Stephen Dubner. Our music was composed by Luis Guerra. To find a transcript, links to research, and a newsletter sign-up, go to Freakonomics.com. If you like this show or any other show in the Freakonomics Radio Network, please recommend it to your family and friends. That's the best way to support the podcasts you love. As always, thanks for listening.
1: I don't think if you asked an average person on the street, are you outraged? that you cannot get trans fat in your food. (laughs) You know, people are like, no, my McDonald's french fries taste the same. Whatever, I'm fine with it.
2: The Freakonomics Radio Network. The hidden side of everything. (laughs) Stitcher.
0: Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th.